Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Alright, what is good everybody? So this is a, a breakdown of my piece, Consumption on Demand, <laughs> the instant gratification of the flex, coming to you live from a random WeWork in NYC. So on the go, yet again, living out of suitcase. I'll have a more consistent background, but for now, you get to travel with me. So yay. Alright, I really wanted to talk about this. I think that it's important to kind of have a framework around the economy and sort of the fundamentals behind it. So this piece is going to be about consumer spending and consumerism and consumer spending as a vehicle for economic growth. So in the United States, consumer demand is about two thirds of all GDP growth. It's like the, the main thing that we do to, in order to grow the economy. And so the big question becomes what happens when there's a flat line of supply and that can match the demand that we have like right now where we have a supply chain crisis. So how is the demand going to respond to this like need of excess demand with this not enoughness that's happening? And I think that we're facing this crisis of not enoughness right now because of logistical bottlenecks, both in terms of production and supply chains, and also because people want to buy stuff. You can just look at the PCE, which is the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, which is used by the Federal Reserve to gauge inflation. You can see the uptick in goods. So people are spending a lot on goods. They want to consume goods versus services. So hair cut restaurants, etc. spending, people are like, no, I want to purchase things and I want to purchase them now. And this gets into this idea of subjectivity in the content diet. So subjectivity in the philosophical world is how we build our reality. So I'm going to build my reality by different interactions that I have, by different content that I consume, by different people I talk to. And I think really honing in on this content that we consume idea, keeping up with the Kardashians is like the key example here. So they're kind of the perfect example of this content mill that we have where our role as a person in a consumer society is to spend and show other people how we spend. So we've got a bunch of people consuming a bunch of different content, which influences how they see the world. So with Keeping Up with the Kardashians, you have to be as flashy as you can all the time, like live vicariously through the drama kind of model where people want to be rich and famous. And this is just human nature. Like we've always had this admiration for the rich and famous, even in the Victorian era, people were watching the kings and queens on the courtyards and it would just be a big endeavor to go like watch these, these rich people interact with each other. This consumption culture that we have is driven by the content that we consume, but also consumption culture hinges on the dynamic of just-in-time inventory. So this just-in-time inventory was created by an engineer at Toyota who came up with this concept in order to meet consumer demands and eliminate waste. So just in time is this idea that everything will be delivered as you need it, when you need it, and it'll be so much more efficient, everything will be better. Just in time did a lot of different things. Mostly what it did was put pressure on the infrastructure of the supply chain, force companies to cut costs, usually wages, to compete with the quickness of other firms, and increase vulnerabilities to something breaking. So. Then the big question becomes, well, what is too efficient? Like, did we reach this like law of diminishing returns point where we got too efficient with the supply chain? Because if you're always operating at breakneck speed, the probability of something going wrong is high. And also the probability of the entire system derailing because one little thing went wrong is also high. And there's this inherent trade-off between efficiency and diggling at the edge of anything might go wrong. You have all these different small pieces. So you have raw materials, work in progress things, finished goods, have to be distributed all 
over the world by boats, by trucks, by trains, by planes. But if one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong because there's so many different moving parts to the supply chains that we never really get exposed to. We just order stuff online and it shows up and we're like, okay, high five, good to go. But the consumer is always wanting more. The consumer is always wanting to consume goods. And so when you have one little thing go wrong, it's not like the consumer is going to step back and be like, all right, I'll order my uh, protein powder for the week. I'll just wait for you to get that stuff figured out. The consumer is like, no, I want my protein powder now and I want it soon. And also I want even more of it because the holidays are rolling around and I need to consume even more goods because I have to distribute gifts to my family. Theoretically, this is good, right? Consumers are consuming, this is how the economy grows, but is it really a good thing? I think that's something that we have to actually like actively think about. Is it really an okay thing for consumption to be a key way of how the economy grows? And I think there's a couple different lenses to consider here. Amazon has essentially Pavlov dogged us. So they say, give me the thing now. We have a culture that's on demand. We just log into amazon.com and we say there there's things that we might want, maybe need, and we throw it into our carts and then we expect the thing to be there with same day shipping. And we're not used to like the idea of not having the things. This doesn't take into account the disparity in wealth. This is just from a very aggregate perspective of the average consumer. They don't understand what it's like to not be able to consume what they want when they want it. And so Amazonian expectation has instilled a few key values, one of which is trust. So 89% of Amazon chapters are like, yes, I trust Amazon to deliver products that we want on time in those little brown boxes. And you also have the everything economy. So Amazon has instilled in us that we can have whatever we want when we want it. Also, it's instantaneous. So people go on Amazon because it's sufficient, because it's cheap, but also they know like, okay, this two-day shipping, it's going to be here when I want it to be here. So Amazon has this really excellent model where they have built trust with a very large consumer base who desires these frivolous products and these instantaneous products. And honestly, what more could you want? Like you should be happy. Like that's what Amazon is thinking, but this model is hard to maintain because of this just-in-time inventory dynamic where you have supply chains and this forcing function of excess, you can only maintain that for so long at full throttle before the entire machine gets exhausted. Jay Forrester, who is an MIT en engineer, developed something called the beer game back in the 1950s where people take the roles of retailers, wholesaler, distributor, etc. And the whole goal is to minimize um, cost in, in order to meet demand. And people do really, really bad because like somebody will demand too much goods and everyone's like, oh my gosh, what the heck? And people will order more goods, causing the suppliers to temporarily run out of supply. The supplier orders some more, the buyers start to freak out and order even more, buyers stock up on goods, trust becomes scarce and that leads to shortages. So it's it's really hard from like an, a very high level to get logistics right because we operate in this hoarding mindset where like different, we're squirrels trying to get nuts where we see scarcity, uncertainty, and resource competition and like, oh, well, we got to get everything right now, right away, because if we don't have it, somebody else might, and that would be bad for our survival. And so it's a very human response and our executive decision-making is normally like, okay, chill out, like you'll get it figured out, like don't worry so much. But we hoard because we're afraid. And then when things normalize, we say, oh wow, wasn't that crazy? That toilet paper was a shortage for a while. It's almost like that was so wild, but we hoard it anyway. And we freak out and then we rinse and repeat that cycle. So we just keep on making the same mistakes. So hoarding essentially is a thing, but consumerism is a flashy thing perpetrated by Amazon Prime and the culture that values excess and flexing.
crypto is kind of an interesting example here because if you zoom out, crypto is repeating a lot of the steps that traditional finance has already gone through, obviously, but you can see a lot of excess and flexing in the crypto economy with NFTs, etc. There's a productive nature to a lot of it, but broadly speaking, the market is still calibrating. And there's really three basic levels of how crypto flows through the economy. The first one is going to be these flippers, so people who buy different NFT projects, they get out on the airdrop, they, they get the tokens, and they turn around and they're like, okay, peace out, uh, I don't want it anymore. And then they take that those gains and they invest them in different projects and they just keep on repeating that the money stays within the crypto ecosystem. Then there's yield farming where you lock up your crypto and going to earn X percent on this and that gets lent out to other people in the crypto ecosystem, but everything stays within the crypto ecosystem. This will be important later. And then there's also holdals, so hold your money, don't let it circulate, stay within the crypto ecosystem. And but crypto consumption doesn't impact the real world economy that much, right? So like everything's staying sort of within that crypto ecosystem. Of course, you have people like buying food or whatever, but at a very high level, the consumption in crypto is a function of two things. The first is access to an in-group, and that's going to come through DAOs and NFTs, and then also status, which are different flex goods. This same exact model, pretty much unsurprisingly, exists in the regular world. We consume products that make us feel rich and make us feel special. And this is flexation th theory where clout is currency, so people operate with one goal in mind, and that's to flex on their friends as hard as they can. And flexation is this inflation for flexing that I talked about in my theories video. It's going to get more and more expensive to flex at that next level. I'm sorry if you can hear this door opening and closing. Everybody needs to stay in their little WeWork rooms and and stop moving around. It's rude, honestly. So I'm sorry if you can hear the doors opening. I feel like I'm so unprofessional <laughs> like with this stuff. So I'm really sorry about the noise, but, and I have noise canceling headphones, but they didn't help. Then the question becomes, how does excess escape in an economic structure? And of course we can turn to video games for this, because if you want to study economic theories, study video games. Um, a lot of people are making the jump to crypto, NFTs, joining DAOs, etc. And in this consumerism on demand world, crypto is super interesting because I think it's a gold sink for the broad market economy. So sinks reduce inflation in video games. There are different sinks that exist in order to take out currency, which reduces inflation so the in-game economy can stabilize. And this comes in a couple different forms. The two that I'll talk about are fees. So paying a certain amount of in-game currency to access part of a world. Money gets taken out of circulation, funneled into fees. In crypto, that can be gas fees. So this is how much you have to pay in order to execute something on the blockchain. And then there's also high priced items where you pay money into rare collectibles. And in crypto, um, that'd be NFTs, so non-fungible tokens, the rare collectibles, right? So fees and video games would be akin to gas fees in crypto. And then high priced items would be akin to NFTs in the crypto space. And crypto is acting as somewhat of a sink in the real economy, both unintentionally and very broadly speaking. Obviously, crypto people still consume by owning homes and eating food, like I said, but a lot of their wealth is tied up into these real-life gold sinks from a high-level gas fees and NFTs, take money out of the real-world economy, quote-unquote, and put it into the more static system of crypto, which is interesting. And so if you think about like the money that's flowed into crypto, like think about if that was in the regular economy, how much more inflationary everything would be, because there'd be the, you know, more and more dollars chasing the same amount of goods, especially the supply chain increases. So crypto consumption is actually a really important monetary policy tool, which gets us into the concept of stagflation. So 
Crypto is a sink, but that doesn't mean that inflation is unavoidable. The Fed right now is talking about tapering, so raising rates, scaling back on asset purchases, because the economy is you know, growing too fast, we have too much going on. And in stagflation is a concept that keeps on floating up because this is a function of rising prices, high unemployment, and flat economic growth. So think like the worst possible combination, and that would be stagflation. That is mostly a function of the strain on the supply chain, the great resignation, leading to a labor shortage. And the idea is that things are getting so tense that it will be tough to grow the economy and it's pretty much stagnant. The question, well, how do you fix that? Ideally, you would fix it through policy, ideally monetary policy, but monetary policy probably doesn't have all the answers. The Fed is whispering these three things of tapering, that yes, they're gonna hike rates, yes, they'll scale back on asset purchases, like I said, but that might not fix this. And I think that's the worst part about all this. We are entering a world where decision makers might not have the tools needed in order to fix this. And I am in the camp where you do need government. Like I, I do think that you need centralized decision makers start directing the, the, the space around here. Raising rates isn't going to be this magical antidote. We really need innovation at a very high level. Raising rates might be good from like, okay, economy, chill out, stop funding, on-demand grocery services. We have 10 of them already in New York City. But what good does it do for like the bottom of the hierarchy consumer? And I've been like really struggling with this lately because it came out that the wealthiest 10% of Americans own a record 89% of all US stocks. My whole thing is like, how do we get more people educated about finance? How do we get more people involved in the markets? And when you have disparity like that, what can you do, right? The system is designed in a way that's very frustrating where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We all know this. The bottom of the hierarchy consumer gets left out in all this uptick. And this is something I worry about for me and, and my generation just turned 24, is the stock market has gone up so much. And there's a couple of different ways that the stock market can return money. And that's through investment returns. So whether that be earnings, dividends, growth, however it be earnings growth, that's going to be like just like broad market returns, like stock go up because company do good. Then there's speculative returns, which would be an expansion in the PE ratio. And right now, PE ratios are at all-time highs, and they've been at all-time highs for a while, and it's like, okay, they keep on going up maybe, but how much more can it go up? Because incrementally, it's going to be much harder to achieve a PE ratio of 80 versus a PE ratio of 30. So it's a lot harder to go from, say, 70 to 80 versus going 30 to 40. Incrementally, it's a little bit more difficult because you have to be valued at such a higher, you know, profitability, earnings. What happens to wealth expansion for the next generation? And so with stagflation and the Fed raising rates, it's like, we could have all that, but what is the antidote? And like, we've had stagflation before in the 1970s, obviously came out on the other side of it. But I think an interesting thing that's happening right now with my generation is this like desire for analog, or really the millennials too, the desire for analog People are really tired of like this corporate model where you work for the company and then the company turns around and rewards shareholders, most of which are not their employees. So their employees are boots on the ground, building the company ground up and the company goes around and does share buybacks and dividends, which is great. But what about your employees who are quitting in droves? And I think that's such an interesting model. And I've gone to a couple of restaurants because I've been traveling and there's just always a sign on the door. Sorry, our service is gonna be slow. We don't have enough servers. We don't have enough cooks. We're entering this world where 
we don't have, and we should have figured it out with the pandemic where you have these people who are essentially propping up the entire financial system, the entire economy. They were called essential workers. And they're the most underappreciated in the whole space. So I think there's just has to be a lot of rethinking of, of how we consume, how we operate. We bandage loneliness with buying stuff online. And I don't know what the antidote to loneliness is, especially at like a very broad level, which I think is what our society and my generation struggles with. You can be like, oh, you're, you're a soft snowflake, whatever. It doesn't discount the fact that a lot of people feel that way. And overwhelmingly people feel, I would say on aggregate more lonely than they ever have because you are alone. You operate in this like, online space where it's very short term everything's so fast you have fast fashion you have to keep up with the trends you have to follow the viral meme format everything moves so quickly and we have this culture of instant gratification which is a byproduct of the instantaneous nature of our online existence because we're taught that we have to keep up with the times that we have to like need this now or else we're going to miss out fomo is huge I think instead of you know GDP, the economy could be best measured by FOMO metrics, which is a component of flexation, which is inflation of flex culture, or how it becomes more expensive to flex over time, plus FOMO, plus instant feedback, plus desire for community. We have a society that is essentially consumer on demand, where we have supply chains and boats that are stuck. There's a lot of room to rethink the structure of consumption. And I don't know what that looks like. I also think it's okay to, I've talked a lot about this. I think it's okay to be frustrated. I think it's okay to know that something's wrong with the system and that there has to be some sort of change because the constant advertising everywhere you turn, that's not healthy. Being just a consumer, I think the, the world can be more than that. And maybe I'm just being naive. Maybe I'm just being too optimistic, but I think there's so much that we can do and will do to change how we operate. I think you just gotta keep your chin up and realize that yes, things are kind of weird right now, but mostly because of calibration and things are always weird. We're just at a lot of inflection points, I think, and it's okay to feel weird about that. Thanks so much for hanging out and I will see you all soon.